Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me on all the major audio podcatchers and Odyssey as well. Credit to at jcamp1521 for the intro. He does a lot of other stuff like that. So if you're looking for a commission, do commission him for some podcast work, whether it be editing or intros or whatever. Uh, he's the guy for you. Today, my guest is David Friedman. Yes, the great David Friedman, uh, the author of Machinery of Freedom. Um, so just so you guys know what's going on, uh, the template. Today is a live stream if you're catching the 22nd. If not, you'll get it uh, publicly available about a week later if you don't catch the public live stream. If you want to be able to get it in that meantime, you got to give me money. Patreon.com just no way Jose 2020. The lowest level is two bucks. Highest level is 20. My highest level is my sponsors. My sponsors are C.D. McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jacob Wintergrad of the Daniel 3 Podcast, who covers a lot of biblical anarchy type content. Uh, I have Brandon Smith and he, on Twitter. He's uh, underscore 2D System. He also has 2D System on YouTube and Rumble and on Spotify as well. Uh, he has a lot of audio, like uh, music type content. Um, and yeah, like I said, give me money if you want to support that. Uh, today, the topic, uh, I'm calling this debate prep, just like I did with Stefan. It'll be kind of a similar thing like I did with Stefan, where we kind of define terms because everyone kind of has their terms a little bit differently so we got to make sure we're on the same page there and also kind of where these individuals are coming from because we kind of initially started out as maybe a debate uh some sort of debate conversation crossover we'll see where it goes um and you know as as deep of a of, as a topic as this is it we found i found out real quick these guys have very nuanced positions on these so i kind of got to see where they're coming from nail them down so i can come up with a good uh like a good, uh, God, I'm a brain fart, a good uh, debate proposition, uh, essentially. Um, or it may not even be a debate, end up, may end up being a discussion. But, you know, I really got to figure out the details with something like this. But it kind of worked out having to come on and give their positions on these different topics. But, yeah, um, like I said, I have that Kinsella one. So you can, that one's already out. You can go check that out one. That one was really good. Uh, just a reminder, tomorrow, Nether Tower Power Hour comes out for those who like that show. Uh, as always, go check out Top Lobster, toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. With that, let's go ahead and not waste any more of David's time, and we'll get going on this. Hey, David. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining me. It's a it's a great honor. I've already covered one of your works before in the show, because uh, I'm doing an Anarchist Handbook series, and I covered the uh, the excerpt of uh, Machinery of Freedom that uh, Malice picked for that book. I got Jeremy Kaufman to cover it with me. Uh, it went really well, <laughs> so... Um, I know, I know you, Jeremy said he's familiar with you and you guys are familiar with each other. So I figured you might, might take something out of that. Um, uh, if you could, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for my audience, so they know who you are, uh, for those who don't know, I know obviously I do, but if you want to take a moment and let them know who you are, what you're about. My name is David Friedman. I'm an academic economist with a doctorate in physics who spent, Oh, about 35 years in law schools, uh, teaching and studying mostly the application of economics to law, which has been my specialty for quite a while, although I wrote on other things before that. Uh, my first book was called The Machinery of Freedom, Guide to a Radical Capitalism. And it was in part a defense of libertarian views in general, but in addition to that, a sketch of what a society which had private property and trade but did not have government might look like. So I was describing a conjectural anarcho-capitalist society. Uh, I've written a fair number of books since then, and my most recent book, it was a book called Legal Systems Very Different from Ours, which came out of a seminar that I taught for many years at Santa Clara University's law school. 
And the, one of the things I concluded from the research that went into that was that my first book, I was in some sense reinventing the wheel. That is to say that although I was describing a conjectural modern high division of labor society without a government, that more primitive versions of more or less what I was describing had in fact existed in a variety of times and places. And that wasn't what the book was about. The book included several such societies and one chapter on how they work, but it included a lot of other things as well that, that I found interesting. Uh, other than that, I've published three novels. Uh, two of them fantasy and one of them labeled fantasy, but really a historical novel with made up history because I didn't have any magic or elves or dwarves or any of that sort of stuff in it. Uh, and as I say, a, a fair variety of nonfiction books. Uh, I have a webpage, daviddfriedman.com. Uh, a fair amount of my work, including several books and most of my articles can be read for free from the webpage. I, Right, mainly to spread ideas, not mainly as an income source. Uh, and others of my things you can get on Amazon. Uh, not sure what else is useful to, to tell you. I'm currently retired. Uh, with luck, I'm going to be in Europe in another month or so giving speeches, but that depends on COVID not going up again. Uh, so yeah. let, let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. We got Russia to worry about. COVID's not a thing anymore. We're good. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I think the thing a lot of people know you for is, or or maybe gets associated with you, which I, you'll get a chance today to kind of clear that up or solidify this as being, you know, the truth essentially, is you're well known for consequentialism. Is that kind of, is your stance of coming from things? And That's oversimplification. Yes, exactly. There are really two different issues that you want to consider. One mm -hmm. of them is how to reach your conclusions. Mm -hmm. And one of them is how to persuade other people of your conclusions. Uh, so my moral position is what is called intuitionism. Mike Humor has a book on it, uh, which is a more sophisticated version than my accounts of it, in which I think one has moral intuitions, one observes situations and reacts to them just as one sees things. Uh, and I think there is some reason to believe that those intuitions reflect correct moral judgments. So I'm in that sense a moral realist. Uh, I might be wrong, but my guess is that it really is wrong in something to, you know, torture small children for the fun of it, say, uh, not just it happens to be my taste, uh, not to. And so from that standpoint, what my trying to make sense of my intuitions, I can't some I can't describe the result in either pure consequentialist or pure deontological terms. That is to say, I can imagine situations where my best estimate is that doing X will have on the whole positive results and I'm still against doing it. But I can also imagine situations, and I discuss a number of them in my book, where doing X appears to violate what I think of as people's rights, but it provides a very large benefit in other terms at a relatively small cost in rights violation. I'm in favor of it, too. So in that sense, I'm really not willing to accept either a pure consequentialist or a pure natural rights, deontological or whatever, whatever position, because I think both of them I can show lead to conclusions I don't believe in. Uh, on the other hand, in terms of persuading other people, I don't think that either I or anyone else has anything approaching a proof of what the correct moral views are. So if I say uh, you shouldn't do this because it violates rights, the person I speak to can perfectly reasonably say, why shouldn't I violate rights? And I can't, I don't really have an adequate answer to that question. And 
On the other hand, I think if you look at the moral views that most people have, they correlate quite a lot. That is, people don't agree perfectly. That indeed is the fact that they correlate is part of my evidence that intuitionism is really an observation, but that's a separate issue. Uh, but uh, they correlate enough, given that I think that the institutions I am in favor of are quite a lot better in my terms than the institutions I am opposing. If that's right, that it is likely that they are not only better in terms of my values, better in terms of most people's values. And if that's right, then the sensible way of persuading people is not to try to persuade them that my morals are right, but try to persuade them that my economics are right, and that therefore the results of what I want will in the long run be more attractive than the results of what they think they want, of what I'm arguing against. So I'm a consequentialist in an argumentative sense, and I suppose a mixed consequentialist I don't want to say quite deontological, because deontological implies an infinite strength for your, your moral beliefs, and I don't think I have that, but a consequentialist and, I suppose, a natural rights believer, a mix of those two in terms of my own beliefs about how I get, how I reach conclusions. So, so it's a little complicated, but I think that describes my position. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, I, I haven't heard that take on it from you before. So I, I kind of thought it was something along those lines that you wouldn't be a straight up consequentialist. And that does make sense. I actually do think that arguing from a consequentialist perspective, I mean, there is some merit to arguing from a moralist perspective, but it depends. I mean, generally speaking, I think if you can make the argument from a consequentialist perspective to someone, it really does it clears things up a lot for them. But uh, I'm an economist, so I believe in the division of labor. And if you are really good at passionate moral rhetoric and really bad at economics, it might make sense to use the moral rhetoric to try to persuade people. But I think there will be a noticeable number of people you cannot persuade that way. Uh, and, and, they're, and they're right not to be persuaded in a sense because you don't have any good proof that your moral rhetoric is right. Yes. One of the things that struck me going over a part of Ayn Rand's uh, most famous novel is that when she had, when there's a hole in her argument, she covers it up with emotive rhetoric. And she's very good at that because she's a very skilled writer. Mm. Uh, but it's still pretty striking if you're, if you're actually trying to turn uh, Galt's speech into a logical argument. And you say, well, step C doesn't actually follow from step B. Oh, but if, but, but, but if you don't believe in step C, you're a horrible person and you're against life and all the rest of this stuff. So I discussed some. I have a chapter in, uh, I should say, I, I have a high opinion of Rand. She was obviously very bright, very creative, very courageous woman. I just think she was wrong in a bunch of, in a bunch of things. And I have one chapter in, in Machin Machinery of Freedom, which is essentially taking the argument as she gives it. Now, maybe there's some other objectivist who can give a better version, but the argument is she gives it in Galt's speech and showing, I think, that there are gaping holes in it so that her conclusion does not actually follow from her, her argument. Yeah, you definitely fleshed out a little bit there, kind of what I was trying to get at, that I do think, generally speaking, I guess you bring up a good point with the division of labor. I think moral making the moral argument is usually easier, but I think if you have... If you've gone to a little bit higher level in certain aspects of being able to make consequential arguments, I think those are more persuasive, generally well, Part speaking. of the problem is that almost nobody who makes the moral argument really believes in it. Mm -hmm. That is to say, if you, if you try to state the natural rights position in a reasonably clean and tidy sense, you end up with a conclusion which no one believes in. And that's that's been a problem for a very long time. Uh, you know, I could... What are some... 
I mean, my favorite example, which is not mine, it was from Bill Bradford, who, who was the editor of Liberty, no longer alive, unfortunately, but a, a neat guy. And he says, all right, you're, you're on your 10th, you're on the balcony of your 10th floor apartment. You carelessly fall off. By great good luck, the ninth floor apartment underneath you has a balcony with a flagpole sticking out, and it's a very strong flagpole, so you catch all the hold of the flagpole, and you start going hand over hand uh, to the balcony in order to get off. And the owner of the apartment comes in and says, I'm not giving you permission to use my flagpole. Please let go. All right. Are there any libertarians who will let go under those circumstances? There might be some who say they ought to, but won't, that that's a failure of their, of their morality. But I don't think anybody really believes it. So in order to make a natural rights argument, a rights position coherent, I'm not sure it's impossible, but you would have to make it very complicated. And that's not what people who are actually making those arguments are normally doing. So in that sense, that's my real complaint, as it were, about the natural rights argument by libertarians, that it sounds great until you start looking for situations where it reaches, it implies conclusions you don't believe in. Yeah. You know, there are, there are a variety of others of that sort. All right. Well, I want to take a little back to basics. I want to get you to define terms as you see them so sure. that we know we can work from uh, when you say something like deontology, what do you mean specifically? What I mean is the idea that there are certain actions which one is forbidden to take, which people are forbidden to take, uh, that certain actions are inherently morally wrong, independent of their consequences. So then obvious example would be that murdering people is always wrong. Now, one might be a deontologist and not believe that. One might have a fancier version in which probably depends on your definition of murder, of course. I think nobody believes that killing people is always wrong because most people believe in self-defense. But a statement like that or taking other people's property is always wrong. And that particular one, of course, is another one where a libertarian who runs into a sophisticated opponent uh, is going to have a serious problem because the question is, why is it your property? And, you know, if you think about, we, we have this pretty story about how we get land by mixing our labor with the land, but that's not really how we got it. Uh, the land we own very likely was stolen from somebody at some point in the past. So how do we have a good claim to it? If we don't have a good claim to it, how do we have a good claim to the fruit grown on the trees in my backyard, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that it seems to me what seem like clean, tidy arguments are nice, tidy sort of first approximation arguments. But if you're against somebody who's got enough sense to actually think about them and work through, it is hard to make a a satisfactory defense. On the other hand, it seems to me that one can use economics, not to, proofs are pretty scarce in this world. You can re use economics to show good reasons to believe that institutions that with a government that can redistribute income are likely to have bad consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, to take much simpler, it's pretty easy to show that as a rule, restrictions on foreign trade, tariffs, for example, on net make people worse off and you can then have complicated arguments with a sufficiently sophisticated person or what on net makes people worse off means but i think if you push that through all the way it's pretty clear that it corresponds to things which most people would view as usually making people worse off even with somewhat different definitions of what that meant so i think you can get quite a lot out of economics and i'm not sure you can get a lot out of moral philosophy
Yeah. Different way as I like to point it, there's a reason why philosophers still read Aristotle and physicists and economists don't. Mm. All right. Uh, now, consequentialism, how would you define that in your in your own terms? The idea that the that your moral judgment of an act depends only on its consequences or perhaps only on what you can reasonably expect its consequences to be. Mm. As one could be a consequentialist and saying you're acting correctly in that situation, even though it turns out that for reasons you couldn't possibly know it has the bad consequences. But basically, that acts are to be judged by their consequences and only okay. by their consequences. Yeah. Uh, what about utilitarianism? I only bring this up because it's one that is kind yeah, of mismatched with a particular form of consequentialism, yeah. which people occasionally claim that I believe in, not having noticed that the entry in the index of machinery of freedom for utilitarian is utilitarian, why I am not. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's the idea that you can think of each person's life as getting a certain amount of happiness and happiness, exactly how you define it, is sort of fuzzy, but uh, called utility. Uh, well, how, how, and that the appropriate moral position is to take those actions that maximize the sum of human happiness, or in some versions, the average of human happiness. I actually have an old published article, chap chapter in somebody else's book, in which I'm looking at the interesting problem of how you would compare alternative futures with different numbers of people in them. Because if it's the sum, then each additional person, as long as he has any happiness at all, is a gain. Whereas if it's the average, then an additional person below average is a loss. And that's a, a problem with a lot of people who think they're utilitarians haven't thought through very carefully. And I discuss that and offer a possible, very imperfect way of comparing such societies that avoids those problems. I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I didn't have this in my notes, and I wasn't planning to bring it up, but this is something that came up with Stefan, and this also, I think, just kind of naturally works in this conversation uh, when it comes to you know this you know ethical values or, or theories or whatever. Um, what are your thoughts on the argumentation ethics from Hoppe? If you're if you're no. familiar with them, uh, far, from what I've seen of it, it's complete nonsense. Okay, that is to say, if it were true then nobody would ever have made any arguments at all for libertarianism because nobody has ever lived in a perfectly libertarian society. Mm. But of course it is not true because if you lived in a society in which you were a slave half the time and free half the time, which is not a libertarian society, you could still do your arguing during the half of the time you were free. No. So I actually, you can find that on my webpage because I had a brief piece in Liberty Magazine back. I used to be one of the everywhere they called them associate editors or something, which meant that I wrote from time to time. And I have a piece on the argumentation ethics. I could probably with a little effort even find it. Uh, it's if you, if you go to my webpage and go to the, uh, there's a section on stuff of interest to libertarians. And it was one of my uh, liberty uh, columns and in which uh, I went through why it seemed to me that that argument was nonsense. Uh, now, Hoppe in general, I have a negative negative impression of him, but I haven't really read enough of his stuff to know if that impression is justified or not. Okay, fair enough. Um, I just I, I, I that okay, you flatly uh, reject it. I'm not going to go the minutia. I'm I'm very much a person that I, I don't I neither accept nor reject it. It's something I've been on the fence for for a while, so it's not even like a big deal for me. It's just it makes sense if you're taking deontological position or marrying the two. 
consequentialism and deontology that you would take. It only out. makes sense if the yeah. argument is right. Yes. <laughs> um, if the argument isn't right, then it does not make sense. All right. How do you define a libertarian? Because I do think this kind of plays into this sure. question when it comes to... I don't question. think that one should try to have a bright line definition. That is, I think the real question, the real issue is not so much, are you a libertarian or aren't you, as how libertarian are you? Uh, and I would say that a libertarian is somebody who puts a high value on individual liberty, whether as a mean or means or an end. That is, I would say that somebody who is actually a utilitarian, but who believes that a free society will have more utility, is then also a libertarian. Similarly, mm -hmm. somebody who believes that what is right is what God says, but believe God says that you want to have a free society, he's a libertarian too. So I don't think that I would want to define libertarian <clears throat> by where you got the conclusion from, uh, but by uh, having that conclusion. And then the conclusion can be held with, I guess I would have said that somebody who believes that a society, that, that the freest society that is possible is one with a government mm -hmm. is still as much of a libertarian as some, as an anarcho-capitalist is. They just have a different opinion about how to achieve uh, maximum liberty. Uh, so on the other hand, I would say that somebody who says, well, liberty is all very nice, but here are some important other things that I'm willing to trade off liberty for, to the extent he says that he is less of a libertarian than he otherwise would be. And in that sense, I'm not 100% libertarian because I could imagine circumstances in which I would be willing to trade off liberty for some other things. Uh, yes, looking, I was just looking at my own webpage and the relevant article is, is titled On Hoppy. And it's on my webpage slash libertarian slash libertarian.html under a secular section on articles and liberty written a long time ago. Okay. So do you consider yourself a libertarian? I guess you kind of answered yeah. that a little bit there. I think I'm I a libertarian, know. but yeah. I could imagine somebody who was by my definition more libertarian than I was. Okay. Somebody, right. who, who, someone who said that even if not violating somebody's rights by a little bit resulted in 100 million people dying. I'm still in favor of not doing it as long as they're dying doesn't violate their rights. And so is this, an, is this in a certain sense you kind of somewhat uh, intrinsically accepting the definition of libertarian being at its root in a certain sense kind of deontological just doesn't mean you have to be or, or NAP or property rights or something along those lines related because uh, it kind of seems that you're kind of alluding to it but maybe I'm well, except you could have lots of different deontological views uh, so you know it's, it's just I think I think you know words rarely have really precise meanings but I think mm. now but I should say I'm I'm oversimplifying a little bit because libertarian in the sense we use it includes a particular, roughly a particular view of what sort of rights people have. So that if somebody says I'm in favor of maximizing human liberty and people who don't have enough to eat aren't free and therefore people should be compelled to provide food to other people. That's yeah. not a, a libertarian in the sense we're using the term, even though he would perfectly reasonably say, I want to maximize liberty, he just has a different definition. So I think there's a 
set of ideas of what we mean by liberty, which really have to do with individuals controlling their own, their, themselves, individuals having control over property they have produced or justly gotten. You could make a long list of it and it gets complicated, but not everybody who would describe himself as in favor of liberty as a libertarian, uh, because the word liberty has to mean something. Yeah. I only bring this up because, uh, you know, this is obviously something that would likely come up in a future discussion of this of this ilk. And it's not at all to uh, criticize. I mean, if I had a position and someone says that makes you less of a libertarian, I'd be like, OK, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you say so. I mean, it's just a word. It's not something we get caught up on. But um, uh, I'm kind of curious uh, what your thoughts are uh, on the non-aggression principle and if it has any any. any it's, Any inadequacies, you might it is say. A first approximation. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. So yeah. the standard example that I've used for a long time is suppose there is an asteroid which is heading for Earth, and it's big enough that if it hits Earth, it will wipe out all life on Earth. And it happens through some bizarre sequence of events that there is a way of stopping the asteroid. But in order to stop it, you will have to steal something worth a nickel from its rightful owner, who, as it happens, has nothing against having life wiped out on Earth. All right. Mm-hmm. Do you do it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the answer is yes. But that's clearly a violation of the non-aggression principle because the asteroid is not aggressing against anybody. It's not a person. It's just a natural event. Uh, and I can think of other other examples. The uh, the other standard one I've used is to imagine there's a madman with a uh, who's shooting a bunch of people. You have access to a rifle, but it's not yours. You know that the owner of the rifle has publicly said that he doesn't want anybody else to use it without his permission. Do you pick up the rifle and shoot the madman to save everybody's life? Yes, you do. Uh, but again, that's now that one you could say one interpretation of the non-coercion principle as one interpretation is you should never initiate coercion. A different interpretation is you should show, so act as to minimize the amount of initiation of coercion. So on the second definition, the uh, stealing the rifle is still consistent with the non-initiation uh, principle, but stopping the asteroid isn't. Uh, I just saw Anna Karika in the chat. Debate prep, who would be debating? The, 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 this, this was supposedly... We may or may not set up something with Stefan Kinsella and David Friedman, something along the lines of uh, consequentialism, or I guess not even necessarily consequentialism, uh, and then uh, something along those lines between consequentialism and deontology, although neither of them specifically uh, ascribe themselves to either of those categories. But there is definitely room for discussion in there, so one way or another we'll make something happen probably. But that's what's going on, Erica Rica. Um, Stefan, obviously, and it actually works as a good, uh, good example to kind of demonstrate these uh, ethical values at odds here he kind of wanted me to bring up ip and uh so he wants to basically he wants to ask if you think i guess he says your position ip is in some aspects you're okay with it uh and so but he wants to know if you think it would be illegitimate from an nap or deontological perspective but then i I guess i'll give you kind of a chance to explain that because i believe i may be wrong you have supported ip in certain aspects and i'm assuming this is where your consequentialism comes in mind or maybe i'm wrong i'm not sure my position on ip is that i am the only libertarian alive who doesn't have a position on ip okay that is to say that i think there are arguments for it and there are arguments against it and that is true from both a moral and a uh, consequentialist from both a natural rights and a consequentialist standpoint 
that from a consequentialist standpoint, well, that would be a long argument, but I spend a chapter on my book, Law's Order, which is about economic analysis of law, working through the arguments for and against IP. And I argue, essentially, these are all consequentialist arguments. This is economic efficiency. And I argue that the case for copyright as traditionally defined is stronger than the case for patent as traditionally defined. But I don't conclude that either of, either that one of them is and one of them shouldn't exist. And I think that from the moral standpoint, uh, it is not at all clear that you could argue that all IP is doing is it's a proxy for enforcing contracts that you're entitled to enforce. That is to say, I sell you my book with, imagine, with the explicit agreement that you won't let anybody else copy it. And we then say, I sell the book to a thousand people that way. After a while, I observe pirated copies showing up. I have no way of knowing who is who is, has violated that contract and therefore I'm stuck and yet somebody must have. So you can think of IP as sort of an imperfect way of preventing one rights violation uh, at the cost of another, so to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't think it's I don't think it's clear. I think if you look at the position of libertarians, I'm probably not literally the only person who doesn't have a clear position. But but as far as I can tell, Ayn Rand thought that IP was the most defensible form of property. And I'm pretty sure that Murray Rothbard thought it was the least defensible form of property. Certainly some mm -hmm. people in his, in his tradition do. Mm -hmm. uh, well, all right, I see Oscar in the chat. You saying ask you about sci-fi and war games? You're gonna probably have to reframe that. I don't know if uh, m maybe you have something to say in that, but it doesn't really sound like a fully formed question to me, Oscar. That is <laughs> war games. I have not played any war games for a very long time. When I was much younger, when I was about high school age, when I was twelve or thirteen or fourteen, I spent lots of time playing Avalon Hill war games, mostly with myself, uh, and some other things later uh, for a fair while most of them back it got much easier when you could do it on the computer uh, in fact you could do it by yourself on the computer because the computer could be your enemy uh, as far as science fiction is concerned i've read quite a lot of it uh, i could you know describe authors i particularly like i think cj cherry is very good i think lois bujold is very good i like heinlein uh, i think Werner vinja is pretty good there are other I mean, it would be a long list. Poole Anderson's pretty good. Uh, a lot of people, I could say. I have not written any science fiction that people, I have sometimes asserted that I have, but as I was saying before, two of my novels are fantasy in the sense that they have magic, though it's a rather scientific kind of magic. And one of them has is neither science fiction nor fantasy. It's in a genre that doesn't have a name that I know of, but it's basically a historical novel with made-up history in which you have a world whose institutions are loosely based on real-world institutions, but put together in a way in which they weren't actually at any time and place in the real world. Uh, all right. I don't know if you meant with the war games. I remember you had that section in Machinery of Freedom where you talk about, uh, you know, say, things like paintball or video games or, oh, I see. or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah maybe that's what he's getting at. I don't know. There, what that's about, this is the third edition. Basically, there's a chapter in the first edition on how a stateless society might defend itself. And then another chapter in the third edition. And in the third edition, I'm suggesting that one possibility is to leverage the fact that many people enjoy playing at wars for the fun of it. And if you combine that with patriotism, as it were, 
or people liking their own society, you could then imagine a situation where you have, <coughs> in effect, <coughs> a large volunteer militia at a very low cost, that you have people who are training to defend the society if it's invaded, but they're doing it in the form of uh, war games, just as, as, as real soldiers do war games, only they're doing it for the fun rather than for, for rather than to, to win future battles. Uh, and you then would have some professionals, but they would be essentially supported by charity, by people making donations because they want to protect their society. Uh, and I, I, I start out with a uh, Kipling short story. Uh, I'm, a, I'm also a Kipling fan. And the short story is a, fic a, a fictional account of a legal system he imagines in England where you have a huge number of trained soldiers because military training is, is sort of replaced cricket, as it were, is, is what people do. And his system, it's not a stateless society, so it's not the same thing. But, the, but I thought the guts idea were, were and Kipling's a very good writer, were very nicely handled to imagine a society where part of what you did, both for entertainment and for status, was to spend a certain amount of time uh, on training as a soldier and having competitions in which you're fighting against other people, but you're not using real bullets, basically, and you have referees who decide who's won and so forth. And it was it was neatly done. And I then went on to talk about paintball as a quite large scale version of that Society for Creative Anachronism, which I've been involved in and is, is something somewhat similar, although the weaponry is not very useful for modern warfare uh, since it's swords and shields and such. Uh, but the the general attitude is and so forth so that was that was the context but i haven't actually i've done sca for a long time but i haven't done any you could think of sca as wargaming at a scale of an inch to an inch but uh but in any case i haven't done ordinary wargaming my my younger son does a whole lot of computer wargaming have you uh have you read any of the dune books uh, at all i read no? the original dune book yeah. and i enjoyed it but not enormously okay uh, i gather from what people say that the later books are less good and so i have not actually read them uh okay i mean i disagree with that a little bit i'd say like it peaks like halfway through the series and then it goes down but i don't know whatever we're not going to quibble about that <laughs> i enjoyed them i just thought i figured you may as well especially it's a very much a series that inter intertwines a lot of political philosophy and such yes well well, with that, I think uh, we surprisingly were really concise and uh, handled a lot of this topic. So uh, we're going to do plugs. But if you're in the chat and you want to ask any questions, now is sure. your last call. How do but, I get uh, it? How, how do I get it? And let me see where the chat is. Oh, it's just uh, I don't even know how you would open it. Oh, I see Definitely. private chat there. Yeah, maybe you put comments in here. I see the comments. There yeah, we. yeah. There, there hasn't been a lot. So if any more comes up, but I just figured we'd do plugs. And if any came up in the meantime, we'd read them. So I, I have but a meager following. So, <laughs> um, but if you want to go ahead and drop your plugs and if any pop up in the meantime, we'll, uh, we'll address them. Sure. Uh, I guess the only thing that I would want, if I can figure out how I do it, uh, I'm not sure how I see how I write in this. I see how I read, uh, but this is, do I have to log in or something? Uh, I don't know if you can it's do it as comments, a guest on streaming. I'm not seeing an input. An, uh, I'm not seeing any place on this comments thing where I can write only where I can read. I mean, you may have to do it. YouTube. I'm not sure if you can do it as a guest. That's, private chat would be me and you there. I know yeah. you can do that, 
The public one, I'm not sure if you can do that on your end or not. Yes, because the only thing I would want to do is to tell people my webpage, which is daviddfriedman.com, which is pretty easy yeah. to remember. D is my middle initial. If I'd applied for the URL six months earlier, I could have gotten davidfriedman.com, but somebody beat me to it. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be sure to add that whenever I po post sure. this publicly later. Because like right. I said at the beginning, I do a live stream, then I take it down and put it behind a paywall, and then a week later I put it up. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, with that, um, uh, yeah, someone said loved watching your dad. For those who aren't aware, yes, his dad is uh, Milton Freeman. So, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, yeah, with that, my show is uh, – you've been watching – No, oh, can you ask Nick uh, David Freeman if Nick Land is right about capitalism being artificial intelligence? I'm not too familiar with Nick Land. I'm not sure if you are or if you've heard this argument before. I know the name and I don't think I have seen it, but there is a sense in which it is true. That is, it is true that a market does what a, what a sufficiently clever computer would do, namely solves in a decentralized way a set of, of optimization problems, so to speak. So I don't know if I wouldn't be surprised if, if Nick Land makes the point in that way, but that would be the obvious way of, of, of making it. All right. Um, well, with that, uh, this has been uh, you're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on YouTube, all the major audio podcasters, Odyssey as well. Uh, follow me at Twitter at 2020 No Way Jose. If you want to give me money, patreon.com, just No Way Jose 2020. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Thank you again, David. Free David, this has been great. Uh, it was a real honor having you on. Uh, hopefully we can set something up between maybe you and Stefan or maybe it's you and someone else. Uh, if Stefan doesn't feel like he has uh, something mm -hmm. uh, viable to, you know, kind of be at odds with in this discussion. So, right. cause, cause he ended up, uh, like, I, th I think he's used, what did you say your uh, position was? It wasn't even deontological. I, I'm going to have to, um, intuitionism. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that more later. Uh, but yeah, with that, uh, we are out. I appreciate your time and I uh, appreciate when who came and with that we are out. Thank you.